All right, we're back. Um, welcome back. Welcome home. European tour. Yep. Almost at 1999. <laughs> <laughs> we're going way back. We're going way back. Well, because I'm looking at my notes and it's like, we're, we got to talk about 1989. 89? 1989. October 20, 1989. Man, we're, we're getting old. Um, nine Inch Nails, Pretty Hate Machine. Not Dave, even the 90s anymore. Not, the 80s. not even the 90s. And. October of 1989, this was me, from my own personal experience, I was out of school already. I finished school at this point. High school. Not school, school, but high school. Um, yeah, and I just started. And you were, that's your freshman year, right? Mm-hmm. So you're freshman high school. I'm, I'm an ex-high school person at that point. <laughs> Um, That's called alumni. Alumni. I'm an alumnus. Shout out Gar High School. Also, thank you to Hot Tem for loaning us these microphones so now we don't sound like we're in a tunnel. Uh, we sound like... Check it out. Like. <laughs> <laughs> it could be like a fucking a storm coming. I promise this is not a Cheech and Nobody Chong really skit. knows... <laughs> where this is happening we got wildlife we got squirrels running rampant in the street we got lizards doing push-ups outside we got special guest thin lizzie Um, doing as many push-ups as he can do right now it's crazy oh i was gonna ask you too do you ever see the sunrise out here yeah every morning where does it come from the east no, I know that, but where can you see it? Really Over the good? mountains. Because I saw it the other day from my window, and I want to go chase it. It's right. Like well, be a spot out here to have like a morning picnic. We're at the we're at the base of the mountains, so you have to go up. But what would it be like? Like Mount Baldy. Mount Baldy. Yeah. But where can you be like? If you're on the on this side, you can go to like right here. There's a little ridge in the in the. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. Like somewhere where you could like leave it's at like a, five in the morning. It's like a valley. Up. Like it goes in between. Yeah. Because it looks Not crazy. Yeah. Because out here we're in, we're in Doherty and it's, well, the weather is really, really nice now. But the scenery just driving out here, it's insane. It's like the foothills of, I mean, what's on the other side of that valley? That's, is that Antelope Valley over there? Yeah. That's like going into the backside of Big Bear, like on the way to Vegas, just desert. Yeah. It's, it's all just out here. Yeah. Anyways. Um, all right, so back to our childhood, 1989, I'm out of high school, my brother's just getting into high school, um, Nine Inch Nails is putting out a debut record called Pretty Hate Machine, and listening to the demos, the, the things that I'm hearing is just new wave music, all new wave music, um, Human League, Heaven 17, Yaz, you know. Some of it sound like the Pet Shop Boys. Some, yeah, Pet Shop New Boys. Order, Pet Shop Boys. New Order. And then him getting together with the guys who produced the record, which is the influences that take over the finished product, as far as what I'm, what I can tell, is uh, it starts to get into the harder, <clears throat> heavier industrial stuff. Revolting Cox, Skinny Puppy, Liebach, Front 242, and 
a lot of Depeche Mode. Like, to me, Depeche Mode, because Flood, who produces a lot of Depeche Mode stuff, produces this record. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, so Flood and Al Jurgensen produced this record. And, and it's funny because on the... I don't know if it's on the liner notes or if it's just straight up, like, produced by. It's got a guy named Alejandro Ramirez Casas, which that actually is Al Jurgensen, who was born in Cuba, which I didn't know until I looked this up. I had no idea he was Cuban. I didn't even know he was Latin, first of all, because he doesn't, you know, it's hard to tell by just looking at his... <laughs> is he back? <laughs> then Lizzie's back. Uh, fucking last time it was dogs fighting, now we just got a lizard fucking calisthenics. That little motherfucker is getting <laughs> in shape. <laughs> Um, I've never seen that. So, yeah, he doesn't seem. He seems like all American, like NASCAR flag bearing. You're talking about Al. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, especially like Jesus built my hot rod, where you actually just hear him speak. It's like this guy does not seem Latin at all. But yeah, always got to be mixed. Yeah. But anyways. So. From the demos to the finished product, uh, you know, going in from that new wave, new row, new romantic, which we used to call new row, um, getting it polished by Flood, which to me is where like a lot of that synth pop production comes from. Everything that Vincent Clark did in Depeche Mode, those those like pipe hits and and steam valve exhaust kind of sounds. All that stuff, though. If I'm not mistaken, is from um, from Andrew Fletcher. So like the first two Depeche Mode records were like the first one's all Vincent Clark. If you listen to that, it sounds like it sounds like the Yaz record, and it sounds like um, pre Erasure because he definitely has his own like like sound. It's just really poppy, not really not too dark. I think Martin Gore is the one that brought the darkness. Right. Then if you listen to a broken frame, that's when they were a three piece before they got uh, uh, Andrew Fletcher, um, and it starts to get a little dark. So the first record is a broken frame. No, the first record speak and spell. Speak and spell. And that's what Vin- that's basically like Vincent Clark teaching, like basically starting a band, and then he left. So it's like, just Vincent Martin and David. Vincent Clark, Martin Gore, David Gahan, and Alan Wilder. Alan uh, Wilder's Alan the like redhead yeah, yeah, yeah. who he even says himself he's like I just hang out with the musicians like he's basically which he's a lot more integral because he sang some backups but he also he's like a technician where they just showed him the part that basically the parts that Vincent Clark or or Martin Gore couldn't handle then he did it right that's how you get that like orchestrated like synthesized you know music with program beats but so broken frame it's like. Martin Gore really coming into his own, trying because it's like, oh, if we're still going to be a band, because our band leader basically that wrote all the songs left, now we have to do something. And he wrote most of the songs, and it starts to get a little darker, and it starts to get a little bit more complex with uh, arrangements. Um, if you listen to the music, and it's not so just relying on like you know like Dreaming of Me, just can't get enough. They're just it's just candy. So right. It's, I mean, it's great. But then if you listen to like the Yaz's album or even Erasure, there's that formula 
where yeah. it's like it's you could tell it's the same guy that's behind it all which was Vincent Clark and then when you get to construction time again and even some singles in between that that's when they got Andrew Fletcher he supposedly is the mastermind of all that crazy sequencing like when oh, you hear, like, okay people are people um, so he, people are people is when you really first hear those like pipe well, hits. That's, that's on before that though is um, uh, construction time again. There's this song Pipeline. It's all Pipeline, just yeah. these, just noise, you know. It's but, like it's like the birth of industrial music as far as like getting those sounds that we consider what an industrial maybe, is. Well, I mean, they basically took a page out of like Cabaret Voltaire or Throbbing Gristle as far as just creating soundscapes with noise, but maybe the birth of it being in a pop format. Um, because I don't think, I mean, I remember being a kid and hearing that, that music and I was like, it just, it was so different. It was so weird for one thing to see a group that didn't have a guitar, didn't have drums. Like you just see dudes standing behind computers. Like, it was like, how is this a band? It's so crazy. I mean, it's, it's revolutionary. It's, it's kind of pop craft work. Yeah. Because Kraftwerk's, what, the 70s? Yeah. And these guys are like, oh, we can do the same thing and construct really good pop songs out of this. With I I tend to like Martin's voice more than I like David's voice. Mm-hmm. You know, but but you got that, like, poppy, that poppy singing, sing-song lyrics like that. You know, People Are People, which is, what, the third or fourth record? I think it's the fourth. Yeah. Um, you know, and then you've got, like, that's when Frankie Goes to Hollywood's coming out. That's when The Cure is popular. That's when, like, the the movement is moving. So they're like, oh, we need to be is not as weird. So we're going to fit into these songs with the pop, new row, new wave. You know, we're going to join this, 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 this movement of what's going on. Yeah. with everybody else at the same time well then you had if you think about it too listen to um, listen to and this is this is late 70s all real instrumentation maybe one keyboard but like satisfaction the cover by Devo it's oh yeah so robotic and it's so leading them like the American version of you know creating electronic music in the pop format which I think Devo girl you it's want not that they get so overlooked good. it's just that they're they're a completely different thing too yeah you know because there was a lot of that going on in the states and i mean i think the british like i guess call it electric invasion if you will they got a lot of their their influence from america again from like all the techno that was starting in detroit and the house that was starting in Chicago with like, you know, all of the all of those DJs, all of those people making music, you know, like Derek May and um, I forget the guy's name, Frankie but there used Knuckles. to be a place called The Warehouse. Maybe that's him in Chicago. Yeah. So these big movements of like this underground techno music, electronic music that again it's like it's like how punk rock, you know, people from Britain saw something and then they took it back and then they regurgitated it back to us yeah so basically like a band like depeche mode could have 
come from you know the states but we had to we had to like it was like they were almost like i don't want to say like the beatles again but they kind of splashed long enough and been like this turned into this entity that and they're still around still going yeah (laughs) they're i mean they sold out the rose bowl multiple times like you can't do that you know and they're still to me they're still kind of niche where yeah, everybody knows the Depeche Mode song, but there's not like like U two. It's like like your mom likes U two. Yeah, your mom doesn't like Depeche Mode. Your mom probably doesn't even know Depeche Mode, but yet they're just as big and they're way more important than a band like U two. Um, but they also still like no one sounds like them, but yet they sound like a lot of other people, and a lot of other people sound like them. Yeah, and like you talk, you know, we bring up the Devo aspect, Devo definitely is on that weirder niche like you got that oingo boingo kind of like it's it's good music and it's it's in the same vein of the electronic pop synth stuff but it's like there's something weird about what they're singing about and they're almost making it's almost like they're joke singing Mm -hmm. like you know like well it's more punk driven yeah it's It's like like a punk version of what was happening in the new wave because new wave and punk were you know when punk's ending new wave's beginning so there's a lot of the people that were and the post post punk people mm-hmm. you know the the gang of fours and the and those kinds of people and then so for me in in taking the new wave roots of what this album this pretty hate machine album is and then you're handing over the keys to the production with flood who did all the new you know he i think he did produce new order he did, yeah, he produced New Order, Depeche Mode, Ministry, Nick Cave. So when he started to do the Ministry, that's where Al comes in. And Al is taking these demos. Al Jorgensen. Al Jorgensen, yeah. He's taking these these Trent Reznor demos and saying, oh, yeah, this is all very New Wave based, but I'm going to turn it into, or this is just speculation. I obviously, I have no idea who got these demos and then in the studio was like, oh, let's turn this into this dark, you know, brooding uh, album of just mm. introspection. It's almost like it's, you know, fucking tr- delivery truck. Uh, it's almost like, you know, like when people have like a sophomore, a, a, a debut album, and they have like they go through a breakup, and then they have like a breakup album. This is like a breakup album as a debut. Mm-hmm. He's like, you know, he's he's like got that the angst. He's got the the self, you know, introspection. You know, like he's he's singing about a specific person that has ruined his life, and mm-hmm. every song is just deep, dark. And then you take the polished flood production, and then you take the aggressiveness of the ministries. You know what what Al has been doing with ministry, and I don't remember if Throbbing Gristle is before ministry or after ministry. I don't know. The ministry started off kind of new wave-ish too. Yeah. Then they got dark. Oh, yeah, they were way different. They yeah. were like, I mean, you listen to like, like Front Two Four Two or early like Nights or Ebb. Like they all KMFDM. They all had a certain like, like at one point to me they all kind of sounded the same. My life with the same elements too. where it was yeah. just like really, like almost no bottom end, just fucking really brash, you know straight rhythms and just weird sampling almost like alien sex fiend um has the same kind of vibe too where it's just 
anarchaic, but with computers, you know, it was, it was weird. Um, yeah. But going back to like thinking about this album and listening to, because I didn't, I didn't hear any of those demos. I heard a little bit of it uh, earlier today, um, which I want to listen to a little bit more. Understanding, I guess, like the context of how long had Trent Reznor been working on this album prior was Nine Inch Nails indeed like a working outfit because to me this is another band you know maybe not as much as like you know the last one we did was about Nirvana and how they kind of just splashed but they had a little bit of a backlog as far as like if you you know if you read trade magazines or if you you know were had your ear to the ground you would probably have heard of them uh depending on what circles you were in but this one too, like Nine Inch Nails, to me, again, was another like, I had never even heard of this band. They just kind of dropped out of nowhere. They were on, wasn't it, did it come out on Madonna's label? Or what was the label that they that it came out on? Because it was a big label. I mean, this, this was a giant record. It wasn't like, I don't remember this record being something that took any kind of like, that needed any momentum to splash into the mainstream. It was kind of just like, here it is. It was on TVT Records. And that seems like a which small label. I think is... Was it a subsidiary of somebody? Probably. I mean, because this is huge. This was all um, over the place. Well, no, this was the... No, it was an independent label. Hmm. They, were, they were their own label out of New York, and they're the ones who put out... The KLF, KMFDM, mm. Underworld, um, Brian Jonestown Max Massacre, even Buck O Nine. They they have a pretty broad. Yeah. They actually put out an album by Little John and Snoop Dogg and the East Side. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, but, but don't you remember it? Like it was it was big. Like it was a big record. Oh no, this was that's what I, yeah. This is a big. And this was a huge record for me. Because, again, I go back to the placing things in the order of my life. Like, where was I at my life at this time? I'm finishing high school, you know. I'm I'm in that, you know, I've had relationships that have already gone awry. So when you listen to this, it's like that little... It's like the opposite of that angst album where you want to go out and punch people. You just like the one where you want to go home and listen to it in your own room. Like introspective. Yeah, it's all introspective. But it was also good, like, gym music. You know, like, it, it had that... Oh, it has a broad appeal, yeah. yeah. Like, it's it's good driving if you're in the right mood. It's good, like, you could kind of just get lost in it. That's that's where, for me, it, it reminds me more of, like, Black Celebration by Depeche Mode with all that... I think that's when they really hit their stride with just crazy sequencing. Like, I think probably back then, too, that's when you had just way more than 24 tracks. It was like they were figuring out how to basically double that. Still analog, but working with, you know, like tons of machinery. And um, you listen to those records with headphones on Black Celebration, you can, in one song, you can hear like 50 different things. And when I listen to this, it has that same, like, appeal to me where, you know, it, it might be one track way off, like maybe off to your left or whatever in a headphone mix. And it's like, like just the pruning of all that too. Like, how did you know to just do that one time right there or whatever, like the sequencing, like, I think the art of sequencing really shines, like, with this record coming from 
a record like Black Celebration where, you know, not that that one isn't perfect, but because the production and everything for the Pretty Hate Machine record that we're talking about, it's like, it's, it's a milestone, you know? And then going back to me thinking about the context, like maybe Trent Reznor had all these demos and then when he once he met up with this camp that was going to produce his record, they might have been like, hey, just how you do, like when, you know, musicians like you, when you meet other musicians or people you're going to work with, you start kind of figuring out where you're from. It's almost like, you know, like when you're going out on a date, like yeah. once you get past the initial ice breaking, you start to like want to know about the other person. Musically, what you do is you like, what are you into? And then you start getting excited. You start creating this dialogue. And they probably told him, like, you should check out all these bands. And maybe that's how they were able to, together, kind of gear all of those demos into this darker side. Because some of that stuff, it didn't, like, like you were saying, like, man, this sounds weird. Like, it sounded like the Pet Shop Boys. There's nothing on this album that sounds like the Pet Shop Boys unless no, you they, dissect it. Yeah, and I think, obviously, you know, I was not... I didn't even understand the music making process at the time. And I actually don't have any recollection of when I first heard this. I'm thinking I first heard Nine Inch Nails by a video. Mm. I think a video came on. Like 120 minutes? 120 minutes or whatever they played late night alternative music. And it was like those blocks where there was no host. It was just Mm -hmm. two hours of videos. And I think I, I think... I think it was then that I first heard it, and then obviously I wanted to go find out what the fuck this was. And then Mark and I ended up really getting into it. And I think this is, if I remember correctly, this album is what made Mark go buy that Insonic keyboard. Oh, really? Then we were, that's what sparked us to want to make, because, you know, we were were playing, we were just playing music. We were playing instruments. We were playing guitars, and, you know, and I went and bought a bass, like, I think I got my bass this year. I think I got it because Mitch was work. My friend Mitch was working at that Angel City Music, and he, you know, he got me a discount. I got that like black Ibanez bass, and it was around this time. It was like eighty nine, closer to ninety. And yeah, Mark bought that that Insonic EPS sixteen. I had I had my first bass because I had I had that guitar that I bought off him in the first place, and then we started like trying to create. You know, we were learning how to sequence mm-hmm. prior to these, you know, tools that we have now with the with the Garage Band and all that. We had to sequence in the keyboard itself, so yeah. it was really hard. It was the guys that were doing this professionally were like geniuses compared to like you know, and we didn't understand the process. So well, and that's that's probably why someone like you know, like an Al Jorgensen who had already had like I'm sure they already had access to all the top of the line stuff and. They had already been making records and like being pioneers of that sound, at least from the Americanized version of it. Um, But just like that's where records like this have that like inherent. I don't want to say power, but that value, because like you're saying, like it sparked how many other kids did it spark to like want to get into a completely different type of music, you know, where. You know, like you think like Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen, I'm sure there's thousands of guitarists that picked up a guitar, 
whether they whether they became real guitarists or not because listening to you know a guitar player yeah just like before that there was chuck berry you know elvis presley this that and the other but like how many people were like man i want to make digital music even though it was you know there's still those are still analog you know when i say digital I just, maybe just electronic music. electronic music yeah. um and that's a lot to be said for because I, I couldn't see like people listening to Depeche Mode and be like, oh, I want to start a keyboard band. But because of the depth of this record, the Pretty Hate Machine, just being so intrigued where it's like, okay, well, let's get an instrument and let's figure out how to put all this stuff together. Um, I mean, who knows? Who knows how many bands it spawned? You know, the last time we talked about like Nirvana and yeah, they influence a lot of people to pick up new uh, instruments and maybe a lot of bands that formed after that that are still trying to be that might not be the best thing in my book, but I can't really think of many things that maybe this record has like inspired, like just sonically, but maybe, I, I mean, I don't also delve too deep into that world as far as, you know, what I listen to on a daily basis but that's again why it's so important where it's like even if you don't like electronic music or industrial you can listen to this album because there's so much in it that you can take away from it and you don't necessarily have to start you know fucking putting you know staples in your face or whatever you know yeah. what i mean like it was it, very it was very accessible to a person who wasn't going to go and buy a My Life with the Thrill Cult, Cult record or a KMFDM record. Like, if you had friends over and you're playing Leibach, people might think something's wrong with you. But if you put this record on, this is like, you could put this on at a party, a mm -hmm. gathering of people, but you put on a fucking Leibach record or a Mussolini head kick, people are going to want to leave because <laughs> they're like, mm -hmm. you know, you're being assaulted. Your ears are being assaulted. But some people, or Skinny Puppy even, can, like, affect people that way. Like, yeah. You, this was super accessible. You had like well, cause it the was, pop aspect. It was songs though. Too. Yeah, it wasn't just like like Noise. I was saying. Like a lot of those early records, in my opinion, I don't know enough about it. I'm sure someone could sit there and really like get behind it and dissect it. But for me, it's like I never liked the genre enough to get too deep into it to be able to differentiate. But just listening to it, like it's almost like it was. It's almost like like thinking about like like hardcore music like punk rock hardcore once there was that initial like like the people that started doing it then you had all these bands that were just like okay we're gonna be a hardcore band we're just really concerned about playing as fast as possible and being as brash and let's just sing about anarchy this that and the other then you have like minor threat who was pioneers of it and a lot of bands shouldn't try to compete with them because they just did it the best from the beginning. But then, to for me, then you hear a band like Seven Seconds and it's like they were just so different because they actually had song craft. They right. actually had melody and they were still playing fucking fast and furious and singing about all the, like, the youth angst, but it was pretty. So, like, with this, it's like, you know, like, I like some Front 242 and Knights of Red and KMFDM, but I'm not going to put a whole record on and just be like, have a cup of tea, you know, because <laughs> it's going to, it's like, I have to be in a certain mood or whatever. But with this record, and that's, it has that mass appeal and whatever, it's easily digestible for the general audience, but it's like, 
it's because it's songs you know like, yeah like, like with with uh what's that what's uh with Nevermind by nirvana it's like whether you love them or hate them it's the reason why these records will stand the test of time is because there's songwriting there and however trent reznor did it whether it was integral for him to have that camp which a lot of records like this it does have to do with the producers being a real producer you know i doubt it listening to those demos it wasn't just like okay hey i'm i'm al jorgensen hi nice to meet you trent reznor what songs do you got okay let's i'm sure this record took a long time to make and they probably had a lot of stuff lying around on the cutting floor because what, what what is it 11 tracks 10 10 tracks like 10 to... tracks and i'm just looking at the song list and just from my own memory so head like a hole terrible lie down in it sin were all singles off this record sin was like head like a hole was the first one so that's yeah. the big that's the big breakout record but the one song that the video that i remember i don't remember had like a whole i remember down in it that was the first one i ever saw on video and that's i think that's the first song that i ever heard and that that almost had like a he was almost rapping in that song hmm. he's like he's like doing this light vanilla rapping in it you know vanilla rap yeah <laughs> very vanilla in the rapping uh Yeah, I think that's the first one I remember hearing um, before Head Like a Hole, which was like the epic, that's you know, the first song I heard. Head, Head Like a Hole is like, that's the epic tr intro track. It's the first song on the album. It's, you know, it's got everything that you need to get this album. Like, if you didn't buy anything, if you didn't buy it for any other track, you're buying it for Head Like a Hole. I thought that was a good single, too. It's not like, I mean, it was weird because, I don't know, some singles back then because it was really you know like I, mean, I guess i guess music used to be obviously way more single oriented but it seems like this era late 80s into the 90s might have been like the last push of like bands that actually had singles like you would have a record and there would be about four to five singles with true b-sides and then you were talking earlier we we're talking off uh I was going to say off camera. No fucking cameras. <laughs> Anyways. Um, yeah, but I mean, barely want to listen to this. Who wants to fucking watch this too? If we did have a camera, it would just be straight on that amazing little fucking lizard doing push-ups outside. It would just be us vo doing VO for a lizard doing push-ups. We're going to start a whole new podcast about reptilian fucking exercise. Thin um, Lizzy Calisthenics. He's going to have his own YouTube channel, and he's going to have like a million subscribers. We have like two. Um, um, no, but... And... and and the fact that Head Like a Hole is a single, it's a five-minute song. Like, that's kind of unheard of in the time. I mean, it's still kind of unheard of. There's not that many songs that are past the two-minute and 45-second mark. But it, it it's was a single. A, and it's a good representation of everything on the record. Where it wasn't like... Like, it wasn't like a... Um, like it could be played on the radio and then it can give you like, oh, if you like that song, you'll probably like the record because there's a lot of other interesting things that, that go around that. 
Right. Or, you know, like before we were talking about like, like what smells like teen spirit. It's like, that was to me like a bad representation of the full album where it almost would turn someone like me off to ever listening to the rest of it. And then also thinking about, and I don't know when this came out, but like Radiohead, like Creep, like they had every, just from an outside perspective, they had all the signs of just being a one hit wonder with that song. And that song didn't really, like it still kind of stands alone in their catalog to me, because it doesn't say what their band is. Head Like a Hole, to me, even though it is probably the poppiest, it kind of, in a nutshell, tells you everything about the band. Yeah, and it's even, got, it's got the that, whole, it, it encompasses the whole movement. of Because Head Like a Hole, it's aggressive. It's much more aggressive than the rest of the album is. Mm -hmm. And then it's a precursor into the next record, the, down, the Downward Spiral, mm -hmm. because that one's way more aggressive. It's oh, way, yeah. it's darker, it's way more aggressive. Um and and this and i this may be my memory obviously is foggy but this may be not factual but buying the cd single for sin which is a single off of the pretty hate machine included a song that wasn't on the album and to me like that was a first it, you know yeah like be it was a first in the digital age when you bought a 45-inch, 7-inch single and it had a song that, you know, a, a B-side. But this was like a new thing because it was a CD and it almost was like a place to to have exclusive. Like, you had to buy the CD single in order to get that track. Yeah. Like, you couldn't just hear Didn't it on the radio. multiple things, too? Like, there was... Because I remember some of the... Like, I remember The Cure, because The Cure had a lot of singles back then, but their CD singles would be like... It remixes. Like remixes, yeah. That's when when you started seeing yeah. CD singles really taking a off. CD sing because we you know we had the ca the cassette singles which just had the track on both sides or two songs. Yeah. But these really changed the game because you know the CD obviously can hold more information than the the tape. So you would get you'd go in the store and you'd buy and I remember the CD single so much because it had it it just was invite it had this red background color and it just spelled the word sin in this weird font that didn't look right it was like the number five mm -hmm. you know like they used the number five as the s it was really really they put a lot cool. into the packaging yeah it yeah and awesome. it was like that extra thin case and how much were they that's what like i don't six, and i worked at, <laughs> i worked at the store and i don't even remember because i know they weren't i don't think they were cheap this was when cds were like 18.99 yeah. Like a brand Whoa. new CD? This is, I, this is why this record will go down, too. So, and I remember, yeah, I was, I was just getting in high school, and one of the big schemes of all time, every fucking other, every year there was a new scam. So we used to go to this record store in Cerritos. It was over, it was over by Toys R Us, like Caddy Corner from the mall. And it used to be called Best Records, and it was awesome. It was like a little shack, and they had like lots of good like metal and punk rock, and like you know, bands used to go in there. Like you, you might run into Tom Mariah from Slayer in there or something. Like it was about that time, like what just hedonistic metal was really like king. First place and that then, I ever saw Motley Crue. Yeah, Best Records. And then they moved to a bigger location, and it was called Tempo Records. I think Tempo was like a chain that bought 
best, but it was the same, all the same people that worked there, a little bit bigger of a store. But I remember this is when uh, CDs really started taking over the space as far as where the vinyl was. They still had a lot of records and a lot of tapes, wall of tapes, bins of vinyl, but then it was all about CDs. <laughs> then fast forward, you know, a few, probably months, then there was this influx of UCDs. So there was just tons of UCDs all over the place. And my brother had this really great idea because he worked at the warehouse. I don't even know if you were working at the warehouse then. Yeah, I worked there at 89. He was like, hey, if we buy UCDs, <laughs> this is the logic. We buy UCDs. <laughs> from this record store tempo and then we go return them say we lost the receipt and exchange it for a new cd and then we could sell those new cds hot off the market <laughs> for 10 bucks as opposed to 15 or 17.99 whatever they were so this asshole like, hey, tell your friends at school just take orders <laughs> whatever whatever record they want tell them any record you want 10 bucks so this was the scam so i go and i talk to one of my friends you know i tell everyone and i get one bite and he's like hey oh okay i'll give you 10 bucks i want nine inch nails pretty hate machine so that was the record that he wanted so then i Give my brother the hot order for this new fucking scam. He goes to Tempo Records. He buys a used Exodus CD for, I think, like five bucks. Takes it. Tries to return it for Head Like a Hole. They know it's used. It has a... This is when they started punching out the... Oh, uh, they the, would take out the artwork and they would punch out... The dreaded the, punch uh, of the, UP, the, UP, yeah, UPC, the UPC code. code. <laughs> I don't know how you missed that. So now they're like, you don't have a receipt. This is obviously used, not from here. And you want this? Not going to happen. So then he comes back to me. <laughs> I already have my friend's money. He's thinking the record's coming. I'm over here lying to him. Oh, yeah, it's coming. It's coming. My brother's all over it. Looking like a fucking idiot. And then finally my brother just swallows his pride and gives me his own copy of Pretty Hate Machine because he had his own and it's like, here, tell him this is it. <laughs> so this is also when CDs used to come, like they used to have the big box. It was probably oh, just yeah. so they looked better on the shelf. I don't, there was no extra artwork. It was just these cardboard boxes. It was to make it, it was to make it line up with the 12 inch record mm. because the, yeah, the, makes sense. the, the, what do you call it? The record cases in the stores were built for 12 inch records. Yeah, they weren't going to change. And they had anything. these little five and a half inch mm -hmm. CD boxes or six inch CD boxes. They're like, how are we going to make this work? I got a brilliant idea. Let's just make a bunch of paper cardboard, put the CD at the top of it, and then you have this dead space on the bottom. It was such a waste. Yeah. yeah. But no, so then he just gives me the CD. So then I go to my friend. And basically, he took a hit. My brother took a hit because he's out five bucks for this used Exodus CD that now it's just he owns because no one's taking that back. He lost his copy that he probably paid $20 for. So the, the one a, and only time that we did this scam. This is a failed business venture. Yeah, one of many. And then 
when I gave it to my friend, he's like, why is just it open? Look at, like, yeah, why is it open? This is not new. It's like, hey, man, that only cost you 10 bucks. So basically, what happened was, it should have just been, hey, go ask your friends what, what CDs they want. And if, and if I, I have, have it, I'll sell it to them sold. for 10 bucks. Oh my hey, God. I was the original eBay. If you think about it, no, eBay <laughs> is to make money. I was the original. Get rid of your shit, fucking for cheaper and than spend it costs. More money. Let's do some legwork. Let's go buy a UCD that we don't. If want. there's any law enforcement listening, this is way beyond the statutes of limitations, so I can't be charged for any of these crimes. This is awful. Oh my God. But, but yeah, so the CD single in all its glory like there's nothing the the only thing that's equivalent to a cd single with a with an exclusive track now is being tied into some fucked up streaming service like title where you have to be a title subscriber to get this particular like i think beyonce still has a record on title that you can only listen to there unless you bought the physical copy of the record mm. you can't stream it on spotify you can't stream it on apple music so it's like it's like you're locked into this weird thing, which isn't the same as like, oh, publicly available CD single in a, in a record store that you can go and buy. And if you knew that extra song was on there, you went out and you bought it. You spent the $7 or whatever it was. Yeah, and it was special because yeah. you had, you know, you had CD collections and CD singles because the artwork's different. There's, you know, the, remember when they came out to you, there was like, it was like a three inch where you had to have an adapter. Adapter. And the, play it. It's Nine Inch Nails. The the they started that. Too, or what they do you call start, it? But they were uh, broken. Mm-hmm. They had a they had a. It was a five inch regular CD in the in the in the new like cardboard casing, not the plastic casing. Yeah. And it had a little like remember the Kiss the gum the Kiss gum and uh-huh. the little mini records. Yeah, it, it had a size. little it had a little case a sleeve, inside right? a little sleeve and you opened it and it was like a CD with extra songs on it. Oh. But you had to go buy a fucking adapter to put it in your player. It wouldn't if you yeah. just put it in your player it wouldn't it yeah. wouldn't spin. Which is all, you know, and But that was awesome. Like Yeah, those so things cool. were really cool. Little little easter eggs that, you know, you had to buy the physical copy in order to to to, you know, take advantage of these things and and broken, I liked broken a lot. It was a really good five song. I guess they're. I guess it's an EP mm. with that extra little three inch disc or whatever, which is really cool. And like you don't, there's just nothing like that anymore. There's no, there's nothing special about releases for music unless you're literally buying the vinyl copy. And like, I think the last one of the last vinyls, which is not even in the in the past ten years, it's older than that. Is I bought a Drive Like Jehu Yank Crime 12 inch record and it came with a 7 inch. Mm. I guess that's the equivalent of it nowadays. People well, are producing more vinyl. There now. were some people that were doing cool, like um, where they give you the record. Like if you bought the if you bought the physical copy, whether it was a CD, because apparently CDs are still big in Japan. Probably because I mean they're the ones that created that format. Why wouldn't it yeah. be? And also it's it takes up less space. This, that, and the other, whatever. But um, there were albums that if you bought the physical copy in whatever, whatever format, they gave you a thumb drive, but the thumb drive was actually cool. Like it was something different. It had some like, they actually oh, had to manufacture. Yeah, yeah. Like you know, they, they, they sold them on tour. 
and you uh-huh. had to be at the show to buy the thumb drive. That's actually kind of cool. But the thumb drive itself was cool. Like, it was yeah. like a piece of artwork. It was, yeah. And that's the thing, like, where with Nine Inch Nails, I'm sure, I'm, I'm hoping that Trent Reznor, or at least in his camp, had to do with all of that <clears> art, <throat> where it was like, you know, because they could have just spat out, you know, singles and, and records, but to, to, to be able to, like, here, you arrived at this platform, and obviously you're in this position where you are going to be successful. So with that comes, you know, an influx of capital, but that they actually, there's still, there were people that were doing something with that. They were doing something unique with it. They were, you know, like making art, not just like, oh, let's just, you know, let's do the same thing. Let's play all the same places. Let's go tour Europe and let's, let's you know, come back home, make a record and just keep that cycle. Like there was, there was something that made them set apart other than just the music where there was this constant like intrigue, like, like the fans that they were building almost had this sense of like wonder where it's like, man, what's going to come out next? You know, like, yeah, there used to be that with, you know, vinyl buying community when there was new records coming out where it was like, man, you want to, you know, when's the new Van Halen record coming out and what's going to be on it and what's it going to look like? And, you know, then so I give lots of credit to Nine Inch Nails as far as like they they took the ball and ran with it and kind of went kind of took their own path um, and just <laughs> innovated some things to to give to give. I mean, you, without the fan base, what do you you? you what are you making your art for? Um, at once you get to that certain point where you have a voice and you have an audience, it's like, well then fucking make them happy and keep them wanting to listen to you. And that's, that's another reason why maybe it's the time period and leading into the, the new millennium. But I think that's why there's certain acts that still exist and are still are relevant because they went that extra mile. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you look at an artist like Madonna she fucking how many times did she reinvent herself and her image and her music kept progressing you know like well yeah she did she did the bowie thing where it was like 60 and she's still connecting with she almost 60 you know she She has to be almost you know what i mean and i mean prince was the same way to to a different degree because he was kind of his own like like prince didn't give a fuck if you liked what he was doing or not he was gonna be an artist yeah um, he was coming almost like like a pop like Miles Davis, you know. He was just he had so much music in him, and he wasn't gonna be stopped. Um, whether you came along with them or not didn't matter. Madonna was more like, how do I stay on top? How does she stay relevant? Yeah, you yeah. Know? But she did, and she's you know she can she, do whatever the fuck she wants. Yeah, she definitely paved the way for like the Lady Gagas of the world. Like Lady Gaga is literally just riding Madonna's you know lane. Good for her though. She's you know no, now yeah. she's Grammy award winning artist from that movie she just did. But yeah, for for and we're I know we were talking about this earlier, and I, I can't think of any one particular band or genre that this kicked off. But like going back to like this album inspiring my friends and I to want to be into this kind of music, which we didn't even do any. We never really made any songs in this vein. We just kind of like took the 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 home recording aspect like this introduced us to the home recording like how do we sequence how do we you know where do we put the tape the four track and where do we put the microphones and blah 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 and then it ended up turning into you joining 
their band and yeah. I just I just gave up. Period. But just the inspiration, <laughs> though, and it would also, yeah. if you think about it, it probably opened your ears, so to speak, um, to new ideas and just and to just hearing music differently. And once you really understand the infrastructure of what it takes to create music, you have a different like connection to it. You know, it's like yeah. it's like if you if you just I mean that's why sometimes I feel like when there's people that really don't have any particular musical taste which right that off the bat i don't understand them because i don't understand how you unless you're deaf how do you not connect to music but maybe they don't just have any interest in understanding how it works um once you do it's like with anything you know like you could be a food lover and not know how to make you know anything so maybe your level of appreciation it would be completely different uh, but I guess for lots of art forms, you know, like I like to read books, but I don't necessarily want to know how to write one, um, if that makes any sense. But I don't know. Yeah, I think and, and the thing that it's easy to, you know, you can you can't just read a book and like tear it down in like, you know, in a day like you have you have to sit down and actually consume the book with music it's such a disposable art form to some people where mm -hmm. they just hear something they don't like and they're like they write off that whole they can they can write off a whole genre by just hearing one little thing they don't like and it's so it's highly subjective to what a person is going through at that particular time in their life we even what they're going through on that day how they heard it what kind of speakers they heard it on like we took the effort to consume music in all of you know i i remember being obsessed with carrying my little red transistor radio around <clears throat> listening to mighty 690 like i was obsessed with music at a young age i needed to have it around me at all times before mm -hmm. i even had a good pair of headphones and a record player i had a little red transistor like held it in my hand had a little had a little hand you know a little wrist band strap. so it wouldn't real wrist straps wouldn't fall and i listened to mighty 690 and i remember like the fucking double dutch bus song every time that came on and i we'd be around our cousins or whatever we'd just blast that little mm -hmm. tiny little speaker you know and it was like i just became a fan at a young age i don't know what happened to me or who i think a lot of it has to do with my dad you know my dad was a jazz guy very very like just jazz but he also i remember my dad also introducing me to the doors which opened my brain up at a young age to like, they're like just insane sounds. And all the stuff he liked by them was like the jazz stuff. Yeah, like they were a jazz, like, you know, Ray Manzarek is a jazz musician. And the drummer. And the drummer was a jazz drummer, so he had that jazz. But when I'm six, seven years old listening to, you know, break on through the other side, it's like, what is that, you know, the, the capacity that my brain had to listen to these crazy songs because there wasn't anything really geared towards kids in the 70s there was like the pbs shows and the sesame street but you couldn't just go to the store and buy a kid record mm. you know i'm sure they had like well there was like the partridge yeah they had like the monkeys candy shit but even those were like developed you know high, much higher developed songs but like the the appreciation for how a record is made compared to just being a music fan you know, you make records, you play music, so you have a whole different aspect of it. So I'm just somebody listening to the music, but had a little, you know, and I've been in studios when, even when you've played and laid down tracks, remember what mm -hmm. Shoegazer at Ton, 
and I actually did a little bit of like dabbling in the studio with other people and and like when you're there and you see the process and you like you're looking you're behind the curtain seeing how this shit's made you have to appreciate the fact that even if it's a song you fucking hate or a band you hate or a sound a singer you hate the fact that all these people had to come together to make it you know you have engineers you've got mixers you've got producers writers all the people playing the music like to to go through all the effort and put this shit down and record it and then press it and do all this it's a fucking <laughs> this is a fucking feat mm-hmm. if you think about it you know you can pull the, you can pull the worst record of any record store any record store who has the worst record the, the 99 cent bin and you pull that record out it could be just garbage music but think about all the people that I had to go through to make that fucking thing it's like you have to appreciate that the effort well it's like film i mean you work at television how many people does it take to make to get 15 minutes of of you know a scene yeah. printed and everything it takes tons of shit and then you have you know the the creative mind behind it sometimes it's either one person's vision or whatever and it's like that's that person or people or entity or whatever that's a vulnerable state to be in and to just get that many people involved to help you get your thing across it's not like you know you could even look at a say a, a painter who's commissioned to do an artwork you know or just a painter that's painting for themselves the difference between someone that's being commissioned probably it's like okay well here's the budget this is what you're supposed to do and you have a deadline that person still has to if it's going to be true and if it's going to be something that's really of value there's not always a timeline when you can be inspired to create your art sometimes you sometimes people work good under pressure where they need that deadline sometimes people you know will spend 3 years making a great movie or a piece of art whatever but the artist that's alone in a room is not the same as the artist that's alone even in a studio because you still like you could sit there and be in your be in your studio painting say it's commissioned or say it's your own thing and you could be completely alone you don't need people on your back you don't need an engineer you don't need a lighting guy right it's just you and your medium and then when you're done you're done making a record or like making a movie that vulnerability is always being challenged because you have the guy in the sound booth Sometimes it's not good to have a yes man. Sometimes it's good to have a producer that says, hey, do that over because that sounded like shit. You're better than that. No one's going to sit there and tell Picasso, hey, you know what? That stroke you did, maybe you should go over. Like, no. So it's a completely different, like, like sensibility and vulnerability. And then you have the criticism that's so, like, I never knew how politically charged, you know, Rolling Stone was until I read Jan Wenner's book and it's like it's I have no respect for any of those people especially like reading you know you're talking about the critics yeah like you know like we were talking about earlier like you know something could be bad or whatever like but when you have someone and what I don't know enough about him but say like a David Fricke like you know yeah he's been listening to music for a long time but why should his opinion mean anything to anybody especially like does he even did he even play an instrument does has he ever been on a record so like how can i trust someone that has never made 
a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, tell me why this one's good and this one isn't. Yeah. It's like, well, fucking make one yourself and then tell me. Get in the then studio. Then let me hear your opinion. Yeah, get in you the studio. I mean? Give me the release date of your record. And then I'll hold you accountable to what your word is. Yeah, and there's, there's, and it's, you know, that's. I think it's with anything and everything. It's, you know, sports. There's sportscasters that have never played fucking sports, and it's like this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And mm-hmm. a lot of people don't care because a lot of Especially people. Especially boxing. Oh gosh. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's real people, easy to tough, sit in the sideline. Tough guys, sideline tough guys are the worst. Um, but yeah. The the critic game, you know, they're selling magazines. They're selling subscriptions. Huh. And I think when you really break it down, the only the people who care are the ones who get mad at these critics. The people who, the passerby who's just, you know, he spends very little percentage of his money on music or, you know, buying anything in the art world, uh, is going to take a David Frick you know, recommendation on an album, or they're going to be like, "Oh, this is supposed to be the best." You know, everyone always talks about this one album, mm-hmm. "Little Feet," that's that's supposed to be the best <laughs> recorded album. And I, I think it's a good. Al- I think some of the songs are okay. Like "Dixie Chicken's a fun song. I like the song, but that record to me is it's called Dixie Chicken. Dixie Chicken. Uh, but that record to me is like. Who cares if it's the most well-rounded recording? Like they're talking about the recording aspect. They're not even talking about the the substance. They're talking about the recording of it, which I Bad Brains' first record was recorded on one fucking microphone. Mm-hmm. To me, that's a greater feat than mm-hmm. seventy-five fucking microphones. You know, positioned perfectly to get this in the nuances of a record. Like, like, like later, fuck that. Like later Steely Dan records. Like I love Steely Dan. But once you get into like Gaucho or even like the police, like the police, you listen to their first record to their last record. Supposedly the last record, it's like every drum stroke was recorded almost like disco where it's just just by itself and constructed this perfect time. But it's like it's soulless at that. Point. Yeah. Like, what's, like what's what is the, the point, point of, of the nuances when the energy of the music is just. We're going to record this just for the nuances. Yeah. Well, it was like, you know, we you know? saw in, I think it was like the, it was like the history of rock and roll. It came out on TV. I, ha- I remember I taped it on video and it was pretty great. It followed basically just everything from like the fifties on up to whenever it came out, which was probably around the nineties. Um, but they're talking about like in the seventies and George Clinton's talking about it where they're just like, yeah, once they got into disco and then they started having people in studios like sound engineers that were hooking people up to heart monitors and doing all these things so they could figure out how to make the perfect music and it failed because it's like that's it's dehumanizing the point of what music how music can even connect to begin with it's like you need Oh, so they were trying to take a a single person's EKG and see how that person felt, but that's not going to translate to the next person. Yeah, well, not just, it's because it's not biological like that. Like, music is biological, but at the same time, you know, like, when you hit, when you have a grand piano, say, in Carnegie Hall, and you hit a certain chord, and everyone in that room feels it, it's like... The people that are going to connect to it and really feel it are going to want to know more about that feeling because they like it. And then you're going to have the people that are unaffected and are just like, I'm here just because I think I'm supposed to be. Um, 
it's funny too, like thinking about or mentioning Carnegie Hall. So yesterday I was listening to this podcast and there was, um, it was these kids from, from the top. Remember we worked on that show. Oh yeah. Um, the WGBH. I guess it's still going on. The Boston radio station. Yeah. yeah WGBH. It's, it's still happening. My friend Jamie Lynn works for that company now. Oh really? Yeah. In the East coast? In Boston. In, right. In Massachusetts. Yeah. Excuse me. Um, but they were interviewing this little kid, and he was playing. He did like a piano concerto, and it was amazing, obviously. But they were interviewing him, and he was talking about, and he's only like I think he was like twelve or fifteen. He's already mm. a phenom, but he was saying, "Oh, like earlier in my career, I used to be really self conscious about my playing because I'd be playing, and then I would be worrying like, are people gonna like it, or am I not playing good enough?" And then he said that where he is now. He's just playing, like, if he, if his performance is good by his standard, whether or not anybody likes it, like, he likes it, and that's what's good enough. And right. this kid's playing this amazing, like, you know, just Oh, they're piano, all virtuosos, yeah. But that he said that at such a early age, it's like, that's a true artist. That's like, he, and then he was like, yeah, and if nobody likes it, like, he goes, he even said, it was like, it was funny, like, he he had like punk rock ethos where he's talking about saying it doesn't matter if people like or dislike it's just if you get a reaction and that's the biology of music you know like um i just finished pete townsend's uh book and at the end of it which i just read today which is the best part of it where he's talking about when you perform or like when he performs he's kind of giving advice and he's like just play to the gods he's like that means whatever you want it to mean. It could mean to the universe and just if you're connected with what you're doing, like there's gonna be people that either come along or they don't, but that isn't like you shouldn't be doing it for that adulation to begin with because that's the stuff that you could just see right off the top and that's the stuff that doesn't make it, you know. That's why someone like a Trent Reznor is he's gonna be making music till he dies, you know? And people Yeah, will, like I I, I was just I was just thinking about this and I was just gonna bring this up. Even if Nine Inch Nails never puts out another record, the fact that he's doing movie soundtracks now satisfies that wanting to hear what what he's still doing. Cause he's done like he's done, I think three maybe 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 I'm off count. Maybe he's done like four or five. But I'm thinking he's done like three or four significant movie scores, mm -hmm. and they're all really good. More movies. Well, the first one was the Social Network movie, that Facebook movie. Oh, I don't think I've seen it. It's that. him and some guy named Atticus Rose or Atticus, Atticus Ross. Atticus Finch? No, not Atticus Finch. Atticus Ross or Atticus something. Um, but he's done some really good. And it's it's clearly, it's Nine Inch Nails because, you know, he is Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. Um, even though they did, you know, when Downward Spiral came out. Because I saw Nine Inch Nails perform... The very first Lollapalooza. That was 1991. First Lollapalooza, Irvine Meadows, you know, the Jane's Addiction thing. Ministry which, played too, right? Um, Rollins Band. Like ministry, Body Count. It was definitely... Nine Inch Nails. Definitely Body Count. Seven. I don't know if it was Ministry. It may have been. I don't remember. I think they did. I, I want to say... No, no. Shit. Ministry played the next year. The, 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 the very first Lollapalooza wasn't... What didn't have ministry? Mm. 
It was Jane's Addiction and Suicide. They probably got on it because of... Because of Nine Inch Nails. Yeah, which is cool. It's like, hey, wait a minute, man. You got Nine Inch Nails playing and you don't have us playing? Like, he's we're responsible for him. Yeah. But what, what I was trying to get my thoughts is I don't remember the band. I don't remember Nine Inch Nails having a band that first year. But when I saw them at... Um, when I saw them at the Palladium on the Downward Spiral tour, that's when they had the full band. And one of the guys in the band, the guitar player, he became, he was the guy from Filter. Mm. He's he's the brother of the Terminator. Remember the Terminator 2? Oh, yeah. The, co- the, the, the actual Terminator guy? Yeah. It's his brother. He's the guitar player in that, in that Downward Spiral touring band. Mm. And... I can't remember his fucking name. And then he's also the guy from Filter, that the band Filter. But um but yeah, like the fact that he's doing these soundtracks now. Okay, do you need to take a bathroom break? Yeah. Alright, pause it. Sorry. Um so yeah, the soundtracks the fir- the soundtrack I guess his foray into the soundtrack was he produced the soundtrack for Natural Born Killers. Uh-huh. But he put out a song, so it was like you had to buy the Natural Born Killer soundtrack to get this Nine Inch Nails song. Mm-hmm. And then the one that I remember buying because I really loved the song was the Lost Highway movie, the David mm-hmm. Lynch movie. And he had the Perfect Drug song on that soundtrack, and you had to buy it. you couldn't get it anywhere but to buy that soundtrack. Mm-hmm. But of the scores he's produced, it's it's he did One Hour Photo. Um, the Social Network, which is the one I already mentioned, and then he did the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and then he did Gone Girl, which is a never another David Fincher movie, um, and then I think he he did something with the Psychedelic Furs for a soundtrack. I just don't know which one. I don't know which which soundtrack that was, but the singer from the Psychedelic Furs and him did one. Um, but yeah, he's he's. I think he won a he won a Golden Globe for one of the, for Gone Girl. Mm. I'm pretty sure, yeah. Um, but they're just, you know, they're all like those... It's just like... it's not They're not like Nine Inch Nails throwaway songs. You can hear the roots of the Nine Inch Nails in there, but it's almost like when you heard the... Maybe you haven't heard this, but... There was a movie I saw where they did cello versions of Metallica songs. Oh, yeah. And it was really cool because it was like... They didn't just play the notes for notes. They like... They played them, you know, slower... Mm-hmm. softer and that's kind of like how i feel his his soundtrack approaches it's like well yeah i mean his even like the that song the perfect drug and some of his like later stuff it's like it's really orchestrated like it's even the way that he sings like it's you know he has a definitely like you you know you know it's him singing when he sings he has a certain vocal like style and i don't know if you want to call it like whatever range he's in there's almost like a it, but it's pleasing like to me you know we've talked about that before there's certain singers to me where they they're like on the teetering on the edge of being annoying and for some reason because he can have a lot of attack and it could be really somber and sometimes he has he could there's some weird like it's almost like he harmonizes within his own vocal projection and it could be with I mean, it could also be layering and the way that it's recorded, but it sounds like he has a natural sensibility of that, where he just has a fucking really crazy throat that produces this sound, where he can make it sound 
hard and soft at the same time and really pleasing. Um, and it's all like kind of mid-range too. Like he, I don't think he has that big of a vocal range um, of everything that I've heard, but he sings like, like an like like it's written like for an, for a, a viola or something you know depending on where it sits in he, the, the orchestration. His, his instrumentation of you know of him make, yeah I get, I get what you're saying like he's singing like he's writing it for an instrument first and mm-hmm. then he's singing in that cadence or whatever yeah like yeah and he's it makes and, sense why someone like him and who's the guy from Radiohead that does soundtracks. Or does movie scoring? Johnny Greenwood. Like him, it makes sense that he does that because he has that same mindset, which he brings to his act. It's like, it doesn't necessarily sound like Radiohead, but you could tell like when you watch those movies, because I'm a big fan of of uh, the movies that he does scoring for, but it's like, it's just so perfect for it. And it's just soundscapes. And it's like, it's that like post-industrial... Um, musicality where you know it could almost be non-musical if you think about it yeah and then you have someone on the other end where like mark mark mothersbaugh like he got into that a long time ago and he definitely has a his sound like you could tell what movies he works on it's like well yeah him and it's funny because all these guys are all connected like like mark from devo danny elfman from Mm -hmm. oingo boingo it's like this this electronic group Johnny Greenwood isn't necessarily electronic. Radiohead isn't very electronic heavy. He plays piano mm-hmm. and guitar. But it's funny because like these these guys that are like really really the new versions of the Murray what's that? Ence- Mario Ancinioni, whatever the mm-hmm. You know who I'm talking Ennio about? Marconi, Ennio Marconi. Ennio Marconi, yeah. I can't think of his name. Yeah, they're just modern day Peter Thomas Orchestra like modern day composers. Yeah, they're like even though they came from this genre of music that people wouldn't necessarily deem as like high value, mm-hmm. now they're like composers that are mm-hmm. being sought after for soundtracks and scores. You know, I think I that's great too. That Trent Reznor might have like beginnings in that where he even seems like he might have been like a theater nerd or something. You know, he's in the Rush movie, which is totally bizarre because uh huh, because they're talking about like they have all these interviews like. Obviously, Taylor Hawkins huh. is in it. All these, like, there's famous drummers, famous guitar players, but he's in it because he was saying about how when Rush got into that transformation into, like, when Getty Lee started playing a lot more keyboards and synths. Right. Trent Reznor was saying when he was a kid, he was, like, just drawn to that, where it was, like, like, that gave him a lot of influence, was Rush's, like, synth years, where... Lots of Rush fans kind of dismiss that whole section because they want to hear the hard rock or they want to, you know, they want to, they want to, they want to hear the songs. They want to hear Neil Peart going crazy. And that whole computer era was just about Getty Lee fucking playing way too much since. Yeah. He actually liked it. And look what he turned it into. And he also, I think there's a quote of him in that. Like what he's talking that, about. That's like the whole moving pictures record where no, no it's after that like they started getting into it with like subdivisions and then power windows that's when it just went haywire and it's like you don't even hear bass guitar hardly yeah um but um he's talking about being a kid and the language of rush was like if you're a musician you like this band because they basically 
teach you how to be good at everything that you want to do. Um, but I just thought it was interesting because it was so bizarre. It's like, like Trent Reznor in a Rush movie, but then it's like, oh yeah, that they had sense. a big electronic yeah. fucking period. subdivisions. Definitely, I can't. I, I've. I mean, a little bit of YYZ to me, on, on and Red Barchetta a little bit starts like the the the, the seedlings of that. Stuff. Dabbles, yeah, 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 but it's not too much where it's like that's all. No, it's is. not the whole record. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, those. If you get a chance, listen to those soundtracks. They're really good. Yeah, I want to check it out. They're very like, they're very moody. Of course, the the movies are dark. David Fincher movies are dark, and they're very moody. The soundscapes are great. He's he did a really good job of both. I think I have, I definitely have the Social Network one, and I think the Gone Girl one. I think I just streamed it or something like that. Um, but they're good, and the. The going back to the beginning of this, the the what this influences for people, like it's it's funny because this is one of the most influential records in my life as far as like not even my favorite. They're not my favorite band. They're not like some because you know I was already going to be nineteen at that point. I had already had you know my favorites. So I. Even though it sounds immature, I think Slayer is still one of my favorite bands. But mm-hmm. um, it's like funny because I don't own this record. Yeah, because you sold. Because that can't. I'm just gonna say sweepstakes. Because hey, you ten bucks, anything you want. Because you just reminded that me. I already have that. I gave this fucking CD away, and I don't have it. I don't own it on vinyl. I don't have the original CD I bought because apparently I sold it for ten bucks. So, if anybody wants to buy nice, me like, a gift, I need this record. <laughs> nice. All right, let's just start a whole podcast talking about shit we don't have. That's really what this is. Oh, this Never is a mind fun... the record collection, because we don't have anything. This is actually a fundraiser. We're actually begging for shit now. <laughs> if anybody has 10 bucks, go to Tempo Records, find the last existing one, get something used, anything by Exodus... Bonded by Blood and uh, return it. Well, you know what's funny? I own Bonded by Blood on of vinyl. You still have <laughs> on vinyl. I have it on vinyl. Idiot. <laughs> um, no, but I was just thinking right now too. We're talking about like it's almost like this record's like a benchmark where. And we, earlier we we're listening to the single, the one that you said was like a. Um, remember we were talking about? It, it reminded us like Romeo Void Sin. and. Uh, uh, what's his name uh, Thomas Dolby like to me what I heard in that too was like like Lisa Lisa and the cult jam or like Janet Jackson like it it had that like new jack swing which was going off at that time oh, too yeah. so like it's kind of a benchmark where guy I'm not saying that like there probably wasn't like you know young hip hop kids listening to this record but this I'm sure was playing in all types of dance clubs, you know, like cinematic and like, you know, even probably like uh, uh, God Save the Queen, Helter Skelter, you know, like yeah. it had such a, a big mass appeal, um, if, which was just so brilliant by the, whether it was Trent Reznor himself or his production team, like how they just formed all these all this this album into this melting pot where it was like encompassing everything that was going on and even a precursor because we were talking about that earlier like a lot of his stuff it's it's really emotional like like you listen to like early 
you know, like Unwound or like Jimmy World, which they turned into something completely different. But like the birth the emo. of like emo, yeah. like, it has a lot of those elements too with the lyricism, the the introspection. The, uh, and the delivery, yeah, like it's it could be you could take it's almost like you know they have those those shows where they break down the record. I think it's called classic albums, and then they have the guy, and they're all, sometimes they're at the actual board that they recorded it on. They put the tape, and then they start like, oh, let's just listen to the bass. Let's just yeah. like this record. You could probably take components, like the rhythm tracks, and put someone else over it. You know, turn it yeah. into a hip hop song, or take the vocal and put like some math rock. It's 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 so deep. Like it would have it would have been something if Trent and someone like a Teddy Riley ever worked together. Oh, and, can and, you imagine? And did a a New Jack Swing record with with the Nine Inch Nails instrumentation kind of stuff in it like yeah. it would have been just phenomenal or if they would have just done the soundtrack together so I'm like Teddy Riley coming out a guy going into the Rex and effects and like Pharrell produced the first Rex and effects like even a Pharrell mm. and, a, and a Trent like somebody who has the because you know Pharrell's not locked into you know he's he's very open he's yeah. got a lot of different influence like Getting a Trent and a Pharrell together, or a Trent and a Teddy Riley together, like they just would have been like, just they would have been like a genius work coming out of that stuff, you know. Um, well, maybe that's sort of something like, like there's that whole I don't know if it's like from Sacramento or but like there's like a kind of a dark hip hop wave that came with people like Death Grips and like I don't necessarily like any of it. I think it's contrived and it's just like trying to do things like that. Where almost in a way, it would have been interesting if he would have worked with a producer like that. But it's almost good that he didn't, because it makes it still like you kind of wonder. Well, how did? Well, he... it was like that horrorcore hip hop. The yeah, the, some of the Grave Diggers was great because it's oh, that it's, was good. Yeah. It's RZA, but then you had like Project Pat, and you had like even even a little bit of the uh, the Ghetto Boys. Mm-hmm. Like you know, like some of that the early Ghetto Boys, I love, I love oh, that, I like that, that first Ghetto Boys. But like, if they would have had somebody more polished at the at the helm, they would have been, they would probably had bigger hits, you know. Yeah. Um, but that that horrorcore of rap definitely could have used a little bit of hand with some of this, like for music was. The RZA didn't need any help. That Grave Diggers record is fucking phenomenal. Um, all Wu Tang, you know, production style. But yeah, this is. This is <laughs> this is one of my seminal records, and I don't even have it. But yeah, so somebody sent it to me. It's just ASAP. funny too how like the hip hop, like like a song like that on the Nine Inch Nails album could be like it's it has all those elements like New Jack Swing, but you wouldn't see someone back then like you're not gonna see Tony 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 coming out all in leather like <laughs> with the nipples pierced and singing about sticking things in the fucking Raphael Sadiq you know dark side it's like the the crossover is just you know but again it's just like it's art forms like music should never have any boundaries um, but it's nice to to like go back and look and kind of I don't think that we're dissecting it we're just oh shit check him out man he's going big now Did Lizzie Ah, Thin Lizzy's back. That motherfucker is. Bad. I'm not even kidding. We're gonna videotape this guy. He's gonna be the star. The next, the next, the next, the next episode is all about Thin Lizzy. Uh, yeah, tune in next time for <laughs> Lizzy Talk. <laughs>
It's just gonna be. Ah, <laughs> uh, so anyway, wrapping this up. I I don't even want to give this record a number because. Oh, that's right. It's it's. Well, you have to have the actual record. You have to have the record. <laughs> so again, this is the last time someone sent me this record. Um, I. I'm saying is like because it's broke ground and it's you know and every, I'm saying it's a solid nine. It's it's not perfect, but it's it means a lot to me. It means a lot to me at the time you know of my coming of age. I was already past the coming of age age, but I've I got plenty of steps in my life to fucking to go back to. Um, but yeah, for me, like a nine, solid nine. I think. Um... I would have to give it a nine also. Um, I don't own this record either, but I, I am a fan. It does like, I don't really remember what I was listening to back then uh, in high school, but I definitely like, it wasn't like a runaway record. Like, oh my God, I just, I want to, you know, I did, it did make me delve into some other uh, harder stuff that, that made sense. Like, um, in the genre, but I never loved any of that stuff because I didn't, you know, I wasn't really a fan of the fashion and all these things, whatever, you know, I was a kid, mm-hmm. but I haven't listened to this record. I mean, right when I walked in the door, you're playing the demos. I hadn't heard anything since I can't remember the last time, but it's almost like a record that I don't ever have to listen to. If I just think about it, like I could, I know it. Um, but what we talked about today and like just you know all these like kind of red flags of like oh shit it reminds me of this and that like i kind of want to sit down and listen to it again just to you know give it its you know some some time with it um but i would give it a nine only like the only thing that would keep me from giving it a 10 like for me a 10 has to be a record that has all these things that we talk about and but also that it's like i can't live without you know like so far we've done two like Never mind. And clearly, I'm living without it. I don't have to, <laughs> you know, like, I, I, I would like the next record, which we don't know what that will be. For me, I'd like it to be one of my, like, benchmarks where it's like, yeah, I can't live without this record. And we'll get there. But yeah, that's I what think... makes these so special, where it's just like, it has so much more, and it's just giving it its its proper, like, place and whether whatever standards it's held to like to me and i think to you it's like it's just it's timeless like and it's super important it's this is a really like it's a milestone of an album and uh, i think the proof is that you know someone like a trent reznor he's he's gonna be making music forever and he should yeah definitely because he knows how to connect to people you know and that's the whole fucking point you know yeah, I think it's like I think we I think you need to pick a record that means a lot to you because it's funny to see like where we were, you know, we're five years apart, four and a half years apart. And it's yeah. funny to see like how and we're both into music at the same time, you know. We're obviously me a little bit before uh-huh. you, but it's funny to see like how it you know, it draws things out like this particular record got me and my friends into the wanting to make music and then you ended up being in their band which mm-hmm. like how did that you know what i mean like yeah. it's funny 
And so like your your experience, your developmental experience of your musicianship going into your music fandom is interesting because it's like, you know, how did this affect me? Because I'm, look, I'm looking at it from a different aspect, how you're listening to it. And you're also the beginning of your musical careers taking off at this exact time. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, too. I think that because you're a little bit older, like for me, I was always going backwards. Like I didn't I wanted to always go to the source. So when I think back on this time period, the stuff that I listened to that was like contemporary, I don't own any of it anymore. And I didn't. None of that stuff that I really liked, like, I don't love it. Like, one of my favorite bands back then, and I used to see them a bunch, was Fishbone. And they don't mean the same thing to me anymore. Mm. And I still hold all these memories, but, like, I can't put on any one of their records. And I have some of them, but it's just, like, they were just about seeing them live, to me. And even seeing them live, you know, starting early in high school... I started to see them change and they got to a point where I remember going to one show and they were a completely different band and I was just like, I never need to see them again because I don't like it anymore. It's not the same. Right. Um, but yeah, we a lot of that other stuff, bomb, like, probably these, too many times. These two records that we've done have been your suggestions and, but I think that I was getting most of my new music. And kind of still, because I still don't, I just go back. I just want to go to the source. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the new music was, at that time, I got from you. And not that, and but I don't remember ever, like, having one that was like, oh, my God, I love everything about it. Depeche Mode was one where, when Some Great Reward came out, you got it. I hated it. And then I loved it. But then even when I got that, it wasn't so much that I was waiting for the next record. I was like what did they do before this? Like, mm. why do they sound like this? That's, that's for me, just my inherent obsession with the roots. You want the things. origin and the yeah, roots. It's yeah. Like, and, and then because, because it's so much more to me, it's so much more exciting to dig because then you see, like you get to the origin and then you're like, Oh, wait a minute. But then this guy was in this band and then what were they listening to? And then it just keeps going and going where, when you're waiting, anticipating what's going to happen, you could get let down. Because right. maybe the point when you got into a certain band, maybe that was, <laughs> they already had hit their stride and now it's just downhill. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like with the lots of things, like you, like U2 was a big thing. Joshua Tree, that album was phenomenal, whether you like U2 or not. But right after that album, they turned into something completely different. Oh, and yeah. the two albums before that, leading up to that, was like, Holy shit! They are a force to be reckoned with. Was that boy and under the blood no, red sky? No, war and um, under the blood red sky. Unforgettable fire. Those are the two right before. Uh huh. Okay. So no, that's like pride in the under name the of blood love. Under the blood red sky yeah. is the is just the EP from their live gotcha, show gotcha, at Red Rocks. But uh, maybe we could do Joshua Tree. I mean, I'm I'm all let's I. Do Joshua Tree. So many people hate you too. I would love to do Joshua I think Tree because I love that fucking record. I mean, I I'm annoyed with like. His ego. Bono. Yeah, but the same thing, though. It's like, again, like, there's certain things about them that... You cannot deny. Yeah, it's like, you, you don't go around selling out stadiums <laughs> without being able to have that connection with people. Yeah. It's like when people, like, it's going to be, till the end of time, people that are like, I like the Rolling Stones. I like the Beatles. And it's just like, you know what? Who gives a shit? It's okay to say you like both. Yeah. It's also... Well, it's not really, but it's okay to say you don't like either... 
also. either of them yeah but at the same time it's like just understanding for one thing if anyone's ever been in a band it's hard to be in a band even for a year right. let alone 10 and let alone making 50. phenomenal <laughs> albums you know i don't think the rolling stones put out any like truly amazing records but the beatles it's just like once they get to you know rubber soul it's like you can't fuck with them yeah whether you want to talk shit or say that it's like really you're gonna say you like the rolling stones more than the beatles because you think that's gonna make you cooler it's like just i I think there i think there is a glaring difference between the two bands oh yeah in in the rolling stones appeals to people who like darker stuff they just automatically have this darker edge to them and the funny thing is is that the personalities of the bands the beatles were actually the darker people Mm -hmm. making brighter music and the stones were like you know not nerds but they weren't as bad boys as they actually appear to be making this dark you know like satanic majesty's request i think it's i think it's great but it's it's literally just a playoff of a Beatles record. Yeah, they're trying to copy the Beatles. The Beatles are trying to copy Beach Boys. Yeah. But also, too, with the, like, I don't think the Rolling Stones innovated anything. And once they get to past a certain point, they kind of turn into a one-trick pony, which is fine, because they do it great. They're a blues cover band. But the fucking... And they'll say that. Yeah. But the Beatles, it's like, they influenced genres. With albums, with su- just Helter Skelter alone was, and that's just, and that's coming from, you know, the guy that writes fucking Oblah D Oblah Da. Yeah. He's like, you know what? I'm gonna fucking beat talk about Charlie Manson and make you know a fucking heavy metal song, and it's like whatever. It's like that's that's a whole other thing. But I don't know. Maybe we should do Joshua Tree or I don't know. I mean, I'm. If, yeah, I mean, if we don't, if we, if you think of anything between now and then, yeah, we could say Joshua Tree's next, but don't hold us and then to that's it. That's when no one's gonna listen. That's when everyone's hey, gonna stop. <laughs> don't hold us to it. Just look out for the lizard <laughs> and send me this fucking album. I, right. uh, if you look at our Instagram page, we have a Spotify playlist that accompanies this with the songs that uh, we talked about. Anything on there yet? But we'll do that this time. What? The Spotify playlist? Yeah, I didn't put anything on the last one. Yeah, just, just load songs up that uh, correspond to the things, the shit we're talking about. All right. All right, peeps. Bye.